welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. I was thrilled to get to speak to JJ Reddick. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because it's one of the stranger podcasts I've done or could even listen to because I had so many questions to ask him. I've been sort of following his career since he was at Duke and uh, now obviously on Philadelphia and listening to his podcast and... Uh, I asked a question and then it turned into JJ asking me questions. This was like a weird merger, but I thought it was fun and I hope to get to speak to him again. Fascinating to speak to JJ. He knows his shit. So uh, hopefully you enjoy some of the stranger, weird questions that come out of this. But thanks for listening. So this is a bit strange, uh, doing a podcast with another podcaster. It was such an impromptu setup. We don't even know whose <laughs> podcast was. it's going to even go on. But um, I'm uh, sitting here with JJ Reddick, and this is sort of a surreal thing. Yeah. Is it surreal? <laughs> yeah, it's weird, man. Because like, like, I've been following you. This yeah, is surreal it's for surreal me. For <laughs> it's surreal for me, too. <laughs> like, I've been following your career ever since you were at Duke and, and uh, you know, through Bill and the Ringer, and this is all happening. So it's very funny. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be on. When Bill and Tommy told me that you know you got, you were doing a podcast with them, immediately in my mind, I thought home and home, home and home. <laughs> and you've been interviewing some chefs. You had Grant yeah. Yeah. and Missy, and you're a Brooklyn resident now. Yeah, Brooklyn there's so resident. much to talk about. Yeah, I think the first thing is is. Would you ever move to LA? Because this is what my wife and I are are debating. She loves LA, but she also misses New York. I'm not indifferent, but I would like to give LA a shot. You prefer Brooklyn over anywhere <laughs> else. <laughs> like, how did that decision come about? Oh man! So that actually is the way you worded that. I prefer Brooklyn over everywhere, everywhere else. I think is true. I, when I think about the United States of America, <laughs> our beautiful country. There's really realistically only a few places that I would choose to live. Obviously, obviously, if my career took me to a certain place or if I got into front office stuff afterwards, I would go anywhere. My wife has a twin sister. She, on a whim, took a shot of tequila in January of 2012 and booked a one-way ticket up to New York. She had nowhere to stay and no job. She ended up moving in with this guy and slept on his couch for one night. Uh, they're now married with a child. And uh, so that that summer in 12, my wife and I came up, we lived in Soho. We were like going to give New York a shot as like an off-season home place. And Soho was a little over, this is before kids too. Like we didn't have any kids. It was just, Soho was a little overwhelming for us. Um, so we decided to set up shop in Austin for the off-season. So we bought a house down there. And then like two months after moving into the house, I signed in LA. So we were splitting time between Austin and LA. Our entire family was on the East Coast. And, you know, we we had my son. So six months into his into his life, my wife was just like, I really want to be near my sister. And we bought a place in Brooklyn and we we moved here. They moved here last March. And then I moved after the season last last May. So we've been here, you know, a little over a year, year and a half. Um Brooklyn's phenomenal, man. Like I have no complaints. <laughs> no complaints. It's just strange to me because like we're 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 in a Dumbo right now, and this is like I can't even recognize. I haven't been in Dumbo in, in some time. This is wild. It's changed in the 
three and a half years since we put a, our deposit on our new construction warehouse conversion in Tumbo to now, the neighborhood is like night and day. It's so different. And from even when we moved in last year with the opening of Empire Stores, where we are right now, 55 Water Street, um, there's a Dumbo house upstairs. There's a, a Chaconi's downstairs. There's a sugar cane. Time Out um, is opening a big food hall right. in this space. Everything is just changing so rapidly in this neighborhood. So what <laughs> I'm constantly hearing the debates between New York and LA. I and, think about it all the time. Right? Do <laughs> yeah, you? I do. Because more than ever, especially in food, right? People are saying, mm. especially if you're a Los Angelino, the feeling is we never needed anyone's validation. We've been great all along. Now, everyone seems to be moving out there. Last week, the New York Times just said they're moving out one of their critics to cover the LA food scene. So it's it just seems like this massive thing happening out there. And the question I get all the time, so I'm going to ask you, is like, what's better? I don't like answering it, so that's why I'm going to throw it back to you. What's better? Yeah, in like New York LA. Or like, what's which, better in LA? Yeah. Or which like, one which is better you, overall? Which one do you prefer? Right. Oof. It's very different. Depends on what you want. Yeah. Okay. And if I would say for fine dining, I would say probably New York City and San Francisco are the two best, and I'm including sort of. Napa Valley in that because I want to throw French Laundry and and uh, Meadowood in there. So I would I would say those are the two best for the food that I love. I, I would say LA is better. Like I think about what, was, what were your spots. I think about Night and Market. Oh, so good on a weekly basis. Which is this? There's actually two locations, but the, no, there's three now. There's three now. Well, See, Venice just opened up. Oh, yeah. so Venice just opened. See, that's the one I would go to. But we used to always go to the West Hollywood because it was only an hour away, not an hour and 15 to the Silver <laughs> Lake location. Uh, and then I miss Sohita, Sohita Annex. So they they have this great Sukumon ramen, which is cold noodles dipped in like a like a really fleshy pork It's like broth. gravy. It's like gravy. Yeah, yes. and and, uh, and you add your own spice level and we would just like pour in the chili flakes and, and, and the chili paste. Um, so I miss those two. I miss Cassia, which is like, uh, Brian Ng's kind of restaurant, yeah, Brian, Vietnamese, Vietnamese, Sing, Singaporean, yeah. like it's, it's, uh, I miss those. Um, you know, everybody says that LA has like the best taco trucks. I never really, I don't know if it was, I didn't have time or what, I never got into that culture in LA. You know, I, I was like really adamant about uh, the taco scene in Austin, Texas when we were there and the barbecue scene there. So I, I kind of went everywhere for for those two items in that city. But but for me, it's like Southeast Asian food in, in LA and sushi in LA. There's no place better. But what about like- But you're a chef, so you, yeah, you tell no, me. Yeah, no, like mean, that's what, that's what like, there's so many questions I could ask you. It's just so, uh, I don't even know where to begin on food, but- that's what I'm debating with my wife, right? Like, I think the lifestyle is a little bit different. We plan on starting a family and I think it's a little bit different. I've been in New York for 20 years. So not really thinking about the food, even though LA for me has Korean food, it has amazing Thai and you have San Gabriel Valley and the taco trucks. It's yep. just the food that I want to eat is yep. just better in LA and there's so much happening. So I don't know, New York is still the best city in the world. And look, it's constantly changing. I, I'm having this debate with my own wife. Your current every day. residence is? I still have a place in, in Chelsea. Okay. We have been renting around different neighborhoods in LA. I love that. I love that. 
<laughs> and trying to see what that is. Let's but most importantly, I've learned that my opinion as to where we're going to live is not the final decision anymore. <laughs> you know what? That's a big step in your marriage. Yes. A happy wife is yes. a happy life. Exactly. I like going back to what I originally said, like I could see myself living in just a few places and, and LA is one of those places. But like ultimately, as long as like my wife wants to live in one of those places, then she gets to choose. Now, if she said to me, we're moving to Indiana. I, I feel like you've been taking on I, Indiana. I, I always <laughs> to throw them under the bus. <laughs> then I may put up a fight. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, there's lots to do there. Steak and shake. Um, but no, I, I think like I, I would like be fine. So here's my question to you then, because this is something we did not think about, right? Bef- prior to kids is like where you live and schools. Right. And, and we are paying the cost of that <laughs> <laughs> now because there's not really like, there's not really like a great school option in Dumbo. So that's one thing you should think about. And, and so I don't know, like, so for, for us, like Manhattan Beach, where we lived for four years in LA, amazing school district, something you got to think about. Well, that's why my wife is really has her eyes on uh, Pasadena. Okay. Which great, great, but very, very far away <laughs> yeah. from a lot of things. So I'm, uh, I'm warming up to that idea. So, um, I mean, I don't know what to say about that. I, I was just trying to imagine where I could live and, the only reason I bring up why you live in Brooklyn is the fact that I know that you commuted to Philadelphia for the season last year and you will again this season. And I was like, man, this guy must love Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> that was a little bit of happenstance. Like we had already moved to Brooklyn. Us coming to Brooklyn had sort of had nothing to do with free agency. In fact, like if I had gone back to the Los Angeles Clippers, like I would have been fine with that. Like I would have just Lived in LA, played in LA during the season, and, and lived in Brooklyn during the offseason. What would be the distance? Let's just say you play for the Wizards. Would you have still commuted from <laughs> right. Brooklyn? It's a great or question. Or Boston? What would be the threshold to be like, no, we gotta, we gotta. Yeah. I had to make this abundantly clear to my agent this past summer when he was like, you know, like Brooklyn and uh and Philly, like great scenarios. And I'm like, I just want to make this very clear. I was like, Chelsea wants me to play in Philly or Brooklyn so that I can live in Brooklyn. Like I will play anywhere and then we'll figure out the rest later. So like I almost signed with Indiana and uh, came an hour away basically. And for like two days, I don't want to say we were in an argument, but there was some tension. You know, there was, there was, (laughs) there was some heat waves coming my way from her about what the family was going to do. It ultimately worked out for this year, but like look, look, next year, like I could go play somewhere else. I think the, the tough part now is like we're applying to kindergarten right now right. for Knox, our oldest. And, you know, if he gets into St. Anne's or Packer or there's, a, there's another school on the Upper East Side um, that we're, we're considering. So if he gets in one of those three schools, like it's going to be hard then next summer to go play in a random place and, and bring them with me. Like our life, really like the life where we are building as like a married couple, our life is here. Right. And sp- Transition a little bit, speaking of playing, like I have this conversation with anyone that does anything creative or athletic because I'm so infatuated and obsessed with the idea of being at your peak mm-hmm. of your, because I never want to be like, ah, I can still do it, right? Because cooking is not nearly as athletic as anything, yeah. but it's still athletic, right? Like there's weird, it's a, it's a very physical endeavor, but it's also artistry and craftsmanship, and I believe that there's like this weird period, like 27 to 32. Mm. That's when you're sort of at your best. You, you don't really know enough 
but you are confident enough that you can do something. And if you knew too much, you would never even try to do it. <laughs> but in sports, I feel like this age frame in terms of when you're at your best is constantly shifting because people are eating better. Yeah. You're constantly training. I know you work out all the time. Yeah. Like, what do you think? Do you ever think about like, man, like my best days are behind me or I'm a different player now? I do think about this. So historically, people would say your prime in the NBA is sort of 25 to 30, with some exceptions in that 30 to 32 range. You know, we just witnessed LeBron at 33 have arguably one of his two or three best seasons of his career. So the prime for players has been extended. Um, Kobe had some great years post-33. Nash was an all-star. I think it, his last all-star game was either at 36 or 37 when, when he was with Phoenix. You know, I think if, if you're an NBA player now, and you know, specifically our sport, because football is different and, and baseball is different as well, but if, you, if you're an NBA player and you use the resources available to us, your peak is extended. I, at 30, oh, fuck, I was going to say 33, but I'm 34. <laughs> at 34, I feel like I did when I was 28. I think there was a big difference for me physically. Like, I felt a certain way at 27. And then when I hit 28, I felt a different way. But then since 28, the last six years, I still feel the same way. Your body way. recovers still yeah, the same way? Same Nothing's way. changed? Nothing's changed. I don't feel any different. Um, but you're maybe, a genetic freak to begin with, though. Right? Most people wouldn't say that. <laughs> I I am. I, I mean, like, you know, I am a Ferrari, but I'm not, I don't necessarily think I'm a Ferrari 488. Right. You know, I'm more of the Ferrari California. <laughs> you know, I'm the cruiser. <laughs> you know. Uh so it's it's all it's all relative. But yeah, I'm 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 a little bit of a genetic freak. Like I'm I'm the guy who uh the season ends and I lose 10 pounds because uh, you know, I'm not stuffing my face with food. Like I just have you know, I have a naturally like lean body and I can, I can sort of use that to train however I want and, and fill my body with great stuff. So I, I want to go back to what you said though, about this, this peak for a chef, right? Because I've never heard anyone say that before. Cause I, and study. I get the creativity part, right. right. But isn't there something to be said for both time in the kitchen where I would think it would actually take longer than that? And also this idea, which I've talked with, with Grant and Missy about, of sort of mentorship. And, and so much to me of being a great chef has to do with when you sort of are placed with your mentor. Sometimes it maybe happens later in your career, right? Do you, do you agree with that? 100%. But there's two different ways of looking at a chef. Because I, I think on very different than basketball or sport you can become just a craftsman, right? Like, for instance, Jiro or Sushi Chef, that's all they do. A, a technician. A technician. Yeah. I'm going to learn the finer points, and I'm just going to be one with my art and my craft. Maybe like a doctor, you have people that are a pediatrician, and then you have people that want to do breakthrough stuff, and they're breaking the rules a little bit. And I think at that age group, for me at least, I'm too ADD, and to, I guess, American too, to ever be so focused on doing the same thing over and over. I think about it a lot being like, man, I wish I was just more patient and focused. And I wish I could just make pizza every day. Like there's something so beautiful about doing that over and over. In fact, that's why I moved to Japan when I was 24, 25, because I thought 
I'm going to learn how to make noodles. And that's all I want to do the rest of my life. And then I get to making noodles. I'm like, I can't do this every day. <laughs> I can't do this every day. And is it because it's too mundane? Honestly, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, I, I talk to my shrink about this shit all the time because I was like, I wish I could just do one thing over and over and over again, but yeah. I don't work that way. And it doesn't mean that I'm not trying to hone my craft, but I'm always trying to find a different angle. Yeah. Right. Well, your, your restaurant empire reflects that. <laughs> it, I mean, it does. It's fucking nuts. Yeah. It does. And, and it's a reflection. And, and I and, haven't even been to Major Domo <laughs> yet. And I've heard that really reflects it. So yeah. it's, it's, it's a little scattershot to, yeah. to people at times. Um, but when I look at the chefs that have created new techniques or have created groundbreaking trends, it's almost always happened around 27 to 32. And I've, and I've actually created like a spreadsheet about this, about like the three to five of their best dishes. Cause I think that's really on average. If you're going to be that good, you have those kinds. It's almost like a, if you're going to be a, an all time NBA player, like you expect to win certain championships and all, sure. all NBA teams. And I really believe that a lot of that is because you don't know any better. There's a naivete. 100%. There's also, you're also at the right age that you just don't give a fuck. Correct. Because you're not at like the, like when you're 60 and you're the old man who's just no. bitter and that person doesn't give a fuck. You're like, you're just too green to know that not giving a fuck is not actually a good thing. So you're, you're in that sweet spot for innovation, for creativity. Right. Yeah, and it makes sense. I always look at things in the world, like specifically sports, because it's so hard to draw any data information from my own field because it's just too much of a bubble. So I love sports. I love music. So when I talk about this, I immediately start thinking, it's like, how come a player can't be good at 22? And it's almost like when they learn the system, maybe there's some freaks that are good, like at their 21, 22, like a Donovan Mitchell yeah. or something like that. Giannis, Anthony Davis. There's, right. there's so few of them though. So few, but for the most part, it's like, I know how to do this. Is there still a feeling when you're like 25, 26 in the NBA that like, I can still be better than anyone else, but there's a naivete that like, actually, I don't know anything. Or is it pretty clear that I, I know what my ceiling is in this profession? By the time I hit 25 or 26, I, it was clear to me <laughs> that I was not, that I was not going to be in the hall of fame, but there's still like, you know, I, I do you really believe that. No, I think there's a, I think there's like a, a confidence you have to have. For me, I was always, I always, I've always tried to be sort of self-aware in, in terms of who I am as a player. But yeah, I mean, look, if you, it's the same thing in a kitchen. I mean, look, if you're not confident, if you're not assertive, you get eaten alive and, and you're out. You're not working at a four-star New York Times restaurant. You're not playing as one of the 450 best players in the world. That's part of your edge, I think, in any, not not any, every profession, but in, in, in most professions, like you've got to have a, a certain, you got to have some nuts, you right. know? I actually have this conversation a lot with many people and I tend to think that I am of like little talent in many different areas. All I have is that I'm going to outwork you, right? That's it. Okay. I'm thankful that I'm not talented enough to be athletic in sports. Like you're thankful. And I wish I was, let me just say that. Okay. But like, I don't know. I, I actually think about this a lot. Like no matter how hard you work, could you ever think that you could still be the best player? And you work your ass off to begin with. Yeah. Look, in sport, there's something called physical gifts. And while I have physical gifts, I'm six foot four, which is much taller than the average human. 
and I've got really low body fat. And I think <laughs> one of my heart valves is a little bit wider than most people's. So I have really good stamina and endurance. Like I have some physical gifts, but I also have a negative wingspan, you know? And I'm also, I'm not- What do you mean f- by that? So I'm six foot four and my wingspan is like six, two and a half. I've got oh, basically- so you're not one of these weirdos that are like six, five and yeah. a seven Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so like there's certain things that I think prevent me from being the best player. Yeah, I could work on every single aspect of my game night and day. And I, it's just like, there, there is a, like for me, there's a ceiling where, you know, I think there's some guys that you, you just look at them and they also have that work ethic. They also have that belief. And that's where the greatness happens. The really unbelievable ones, the LeBrons, MJ, Larry Bird, Go down the list. But I mean, was Larry Bird? But Larry Bird was never as athletic as LeBron James, right? Or was he, he was six foot nine? Like I always say, like if if I was two to three inches taller, I think my career would be a little bit different. If I had, even if I was six four and I had a six nine wingspan, like my career would be different. That's just reality, you know. I don't know that. Like you can make the argument. Well, you wouldn't have worked as hard because it would have been easier for you. But like I, I I'm a worker, so I, I think my career would have been different. Um, not that it hasn't been bad, but it's just, I think the ceiling would be higher. Right. And I'm not, I, I asked this question because I, for the life of me, don't know if I would be able to like know what it would feel like to work my ass off and never get to the level that I want to. Because at least in cooking, even though I have no idea how to get to where I might want to be, I'm just going to like outwork everyone and I'll get there somehow. Yeah. But Dave, don't you think there's like a level of, of, creativity you have to have because i think this in sports too if if someone is six foot six with great vitals and they work their ass off at basketball it doesn't always equate to being a great player right there's so many other factors that go into it right and i imagine someone being like this is the dumbest fucking conversation i ever had (laughs) you are comparing cooking to, to, to the nba like i understand that i just this is just something that I think about because it gives me better perspective of what I'm doing. And then I meet someone like you that is literally at the peak of your powers too. And I'm like, wow, this is fucking crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. That I don't know how I would feel that no matter what I do, I'm at the best. But like, I don't know how I would feel about, maybe I would just go crazy, I think. I would just work more. But you couldn't practice more, could you? Physically? Yeah. Not really. I mean, no. Like, there's a, there's a point of diminishing return for your body. Like you have to be able to recover. I want to go back to this creativity thing as a chef. Yeah. Okay. Because like a player like Harden or CJ McCollum. Well, let's go back to Harden. Like no. I don't understand why Harden's so good. Because <laughs> he's creative and because he's left-handed and he had finally admitted <laughs> it, by the way. I can't remember who interviewed him and he was they were talking about oh, Mark Stein maybe. And they asked him about, you know, being left-handed. And he goes, oh, I wouldn't be half the player I was if I was right-handed. Why is that such a huge difference? It just is. You don't see it every time. It's like, you know, I, I don't know. It's like you're guarding someone and everything they're doing is in reverse or something. It sounds stupid, but it's the truth. He's funky. There's just a funkiness to his game. And it's hard. It's hard. But is he the best athlete? No. I'm, how are we measuring athletes? Like, He's not like part of, Gianna. Part of not being Giannis. an athlete is skill, though. Right. I guess you're, you're definitely right. What am I saying? What am I arguing with you over this shit over? If we're just, <laughs> look, honestly, I've had this discussion with so a lot stupid. of people. If we're just talking running, jumping, power, strength, NFL players are the best athletes. It's not even close. Those guys go to the combine, like a cornerback in the NFL. All those guys are jumping like 38 standing vert. 
NBA players go to the combine, they're jumping 31 inches standing vert. Those guys are bench pressing 225, <laughs> 34 times. They're running 40s in like 4.03. I, I made that up. But like, you know, it's like, it's insane. Right. It's just pure like, you know, running, jumping. That so there's still creativity left, right? Yes. In the game. There's, how should I phrase this? There's still things left to be discovered in the NBA. Absolutely. But they're just like there's still things to discover in the kitchen. Because I'm going to, I like this comparison because I would assume you could be a great tactician in the kitchen, a technically sound chef, and you may never have great success. You may never have, you know, a critically acclaimed restaurant. You may never build a restaurant empire. You may not have your own cookbook. You, you may never get to that point. Mm. Or whatever it is that chefs, <laughs> I asked Grant this. I was like, well, how do you measure success? It's it's very arbitrary. But like whatever it is that however chefs would measure success, like you could you could be a great tactician and technician and all that stuff and be fundamentally sound. But if there's if there's missing, you know, emotion, if there's missing creativity, if there's missing some sort of connection that the eater doesn't ever get, then it it's it falls flat. And it's the same way in sports. Like if if there's not that creativity and there's there's not that emotion, then it falls flat. Creativity for me, like someone like Grant, I can't do what he does. I just can't. <laughs> yeah. Like he thinks about things in a way that I'm just I'm I can't comprehend how some of those creations happen. Or someone like Ferran Adria or Heston Blumenthal or Wiley Dufresne, there's a school of thought that like that's what they do. For me, I've always looked at it as I just fuck up more than anyone else. <laughs> I'm going to fuck up more than anyone else. And through all those mistakes, I'm going to cobble together something that no one else is doing. That's really it, man. It's an incredible mindset. That's an incredible mindset. <laughs> I'm honestly, I'm listening to you talk about hard work and like learning through failure. And I'm keep thinking in my brain, like the Angela Duckworth book, Grit. Like I just keep going back to that. Like it, like she needs to write a sequel about it's you. It's funny. She just, we, <laughs> she actually reached out. I, we're, we're, we're trying to meet up. And, yeah. I, and um, that's it is like, I firmly believe that even if I couldn't, I'm not going to be an NBA player. No, no offspring of mine will ever be in the NBA. But I do believe that maybe if you work hard enough, you can be a coach. You can be a GM. There's still ways for you to be in the oh, sure. professional sports sure. arena. And that's what's fascinating to me is, yeah, Lord. talent separates things, right? Right. But at the end of the day, I believe hard work is the great equalizer in just about anything. Before we go on, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Today's Dave Chang Show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Hiring is a challenge. I would know we're constantly in need of great people at our restaurants all the time. But there's one place I go and you can go to where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. 
With the results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G. ZipRecruiter.com slash Chang. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I want to go back to something you said earlier, and I was going to actually ask you about this on my pod, but we'll talk about it on your pod anyways. <laughs> so you were talking about your, your spreadsheet mm. where you rated chefs when they were in their prime. And one of the factors in that was the best dishes they created or the dishes they're known for. And so I'm, I'm curious, when I found out you were potentially going to be on my podcast, I was like, one of the best dishes I've ever had in my life was at Sam Sambar, which is one of your restaurants in New York. It was the the whole roasted duck with the scallion pancakes. Right. I still think about that to this day. I ate it six years ago, it, and so I'm curious, like, if there's like two or three dishes or three to five dishes that you've had in your life, even if they're just obscure things that you, not necessarily things you eat on a weekly basis, but but dishes that you just remember and you think about. On a, on a regular basis. I'm constantly in search for that. And the best dishes for me is when I eat something and I'm like, fuck, <laughs> why didn't I do that? <laughs> right? Like, again, like someone like a Fran Adria, they're going to try to create a dish that no one has even contemplated. I want the dish that I've always said this, because even though I'm not a, like a great understanding of modern art, like I look at Rothko and I'm like, I could have fucking done that, but you did it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's to me is like a, a level of skill that is tantalizing because it seems that anyone could reach it, but you just didn't get there for whatever reason. Oftentimes I think it's just because you didn't want it bad enough. So I'm trying to think of a dish. Um, shit, this is going to be useless because I can't think off the top of my head. But for me, the dishes that are great, talking about a taco truck, right? Mariscos Jaliscos. Lake Gold loved it. It's a simple fried shrimp in like a hard taco shell. It's almost to me like a hargow, but everyone got mad on the TV show when I said that. When I ate that, I was like, fuck. It was so good. I was like, I couldn't comprehend how simple it was. And the fact that no one else had done something like that, right. that to me was the genius of it all, was when you strip away all the bullshit and then someone's able to find some angle and turn trash into gold, that's the shit that gets me like, completely excited. And I'm constantly looking for that. And for me, when I say about creativity through mistakes, I'm trying to always look at the ideas that are bad or culturally people think are stupid because that means that no one's looking at it. Mm, that's interesting. And I can mine that for gold, possibly. Where do you stand on molecular gastronomy um, in terms of the level of satisfaction it gives you after a meal? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, 100%. Um, it's a longer debate, and I feel like we could talk forever <laughs> about this stuff. But molecular gastronomy, for those that don't know, was a term that was coined by the media in the mid-90s, late-90s by a bunch of scientists. It was a marketing term, and it's basically anything that is um, modern gastronomy, right? Anything that might be something you would not see your mom ever making, right? Something that's been manipulated. Manipulated. Way. I'll give you an example. Like, Grant's helium balloon yeah. at Alinea. That is to me like a great version of it because everyone can see that, understand it, but it is like completely out of anyone's comfort zone, I think. But it's also fun and and yeah. 
when you eat a restaurant like that, I think first and foremost, it has to be delicious. And it's not that, you could be at Noma, you could be at Vespertine in LA. I thought Vespertine in LA, if you haven't been, there's a perfect example of, it's an important restaurant that you need to support. It doesn't mean that you're going to go there to leave on a full belly. Yeah. But the fact that it exists allows you to cook the comfort food that you love so much. At least that's how I look at it. And there's dining out and there's eating. And some things that are modern gastronomy, it's like watching some fancy movie that you might not quite understand, but you know you have to watch it and it's good, but you don't quite get it. But if it doesn't exist, you're not going to be able to like love like Animal House. You know what I mean? No, I get it. You summarize it well because for me, it's not necessarily that you're going to go to some of these restaurants and even remember half the dishes. It's about the experience and it's about being there. It's about the support because these chefs are pushing the envelope. They're pushing the bounds of creativity. They're discovering new things. You know, the fact that I never went to El Bulli, like I regret that. Like I need to get my ass to Copenhagen and I need to go to Noma. Like those are important things to me. The fact that I got to eat at Alinea, like I'm proud of that. Um, And actually, I I love the food. I thought it was great. But Missy and I kind of talked about this when I had her on my podcast. And and just, you know, what she, you, you mentioned, you mentioned this twice now. She was trying to create something simple, elevated, but simple. And it's something that you'd want to keep going back to over and over again. Yeah. I think for me, when I was younger and less sure of myself, I think it was way more of a narcissistic endeavor to show how fucking awesome you could be. <laughs> um, and now I look back at a lot of things that I did and I'm like, oh my God, what, the, what was I thinking? I actually think a lot of modern gastronomy as sort of disco era food. Because even if you don't love disco in the late 70s, even even like the Grateful Dead had like a disco album, essentially. It just was something that was so pervasive that you just thought that's how it was. And modern gastronomy to me is so important. Even if you don't love the food, it was important for the simple reason that people began to ask the question, why and how? And like just deeper questions as to how you could make food better. And that to me is the great legacy of it. But the older I get, the less I am worried about impressing anyone. (laughs) I just want to make someone, I want to make someone feel good that they're eating the food more and more. And I'm the old man in my restaurants now and everyone, I'm always like, I'm not telling them not to go down this road of trying to be this cool, make cool food. It just doesn't resonate with me anymore. How much time do you spend in your restaurants now? Less and less. I mean, like Major Domo, I'm spending a lot of time. Cooking. Cooking too, right? And developing and it's weird. Like my job is very strange. So I want to spend more time. That's what I realized it's important to me is um, spending more time in the kitchen because like I need that creative outlet. But I'm acutely aware that my body's not the same. It is without a doubt a young person's game. My arthritis is terrible. My left hip is fucked up. I have you know, herniated disc, my L4, 5. Like it's just not, it's harder to do it And as you get older, you just cannot keep up. So that's something that you have to adjust for. So one reason why I always look at sports is I always admire the athletes that just figured out how to transition gracefully. And if I'm a player now, it's like into the latter part of their year or into retirement. Either or. It's like they're prepared. Yeah. Right? Like when you stop playing, I could easily see you being like, one of the best broadcasters or something like that. One of the best podcast hosts. Podcasters. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Like. Who knows? But something <laughs> yeah, like that, yeah. like you're, you're always looking around the corner. And for me, 
I think maybe as my role is like, I'm not the point guard or quarterback. I'm definitely transitioning more to the coach. And I think I have been, maybe now I got to be more the GM. I have no fucking idea, but I know what worked for me in the past is not going to work anymore. So that's, what's exciting and terrifying. There's a scene in billions where you serve Bobby Axelrod. (laughs) (laughs) It's Bobby, Bobby and, and, uh, the dude that, uh, we're doing some shady deal with. yeah. Yeah. And that's a co, right? Co, yes. Yeah. The likelihood of that ever happening in real life at this point in your life. One <laughs> percent or less? Like zero, zero percent, <laughs> but like still very believable simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's what I love about that show. It's like, yeah. I don't think I would ever say that, but yeah. when I watch it, I was like, yeah, I can totally believe yeah, this happening. Sure, sure. I don't know, man. Things are different. So is this the natural cycle for a chef though? Like what you've gone, like in an ideal world for a chef, is this the cycle sort of being in the kitchen, building a reputation, building an empire, doing all the stuff that comes with being a chef. And now you're, I mean, you're essentially a celebrity. You are a celebrity. Sorry. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. This you is, have your, this, we're you, on his you, podcast you now, You have right? your own show. No, you're still on your podcast. I'm just, these are, these are all things I think about. No, I mean, I, I, I wish I could follow some kind of mold that in terms of this is how it happened. I do know this. You start out young, you get into the profession, you want to like burn the whole world down for the most part. You want to work with the best and then you find your voice and then you simplify. And there's a reason why I always joke that everyone that gets older in the culinary arts always, they always want to make Italian food. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. There are some data that makes that correlation real. And I think that, I don't know what that is, that next step is for me. But one thing for sure, I I don't like being defined, right? Like I want to be able to figure out what exactly I want to do without someone telling me this is how you should do it. There's an elusiveness. (laughs) Might just be completely ADD. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think you're elusive. I think so. All right. What's your, I have one more question, then I'll let you get back to asking me questions. Um, If let's say I was 34, married with a wife Uh, who also really liked food and had, I don't know, like four months off every summer and (laughs) could afford to take like a seven to 10 day trip to any country in the world that was maybe under the radar that would be an amazing food trip. I would obviously always say Japan, but if it's under the radar, I feel like Taipei might be a cool cool place. It's obviously one of the great food destinations, but I don't think it gets the love it deserves from the Western media. And if I still think that if you have seven to 10 days, San Sebastian is still one of the best places you can go. El Cano, Echabari, all the Pincho bars, Arzac. It's just like perfect trip for like seven to 10 days. We were considering doing that next summer. Do you want to go with me? You, yeah, I would love I, I mean, you to be my sure, guy. Sure, <laughs> I mean, I love it there. We'll, so we'll, we'll, we were there last year, my wife and I, and right. uh, we brought some friends. It is, um, it's just a really great town, man. Yeah. Like, I can't. It, it's just so great, and I don't know why it's not more popular. So I don't have to worry about it because it's already been in yeah, so many sure. TV shows. But sure. it's always just like chill, you know. And it's if there was so ever beautiful. direct flight from New York, it would be a game changer. Yeah, I went to Japan uh, last summer. We were only there like five or six nights, mostly in Tokyo. We spent one night in Kyoto, but it was one of those trips where as soon as I landed at JFK, I was like, I just want to go back. Yeah, I highly recommend when you have some more time to just, it's just nothing like it. 
There for me, it's two like weeks it. and I got to get the hell out of that country because I used to live there. Yeah. And then I'm, I remember why I had to leave. But the food there is just, you know, you have restaurants there that are older than America. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. They have an idea True. of food yeah. that is just at a different level than anywhere else in the world. And in my opinion, I got to ask this question because I, I want to talk to you at another time when we have more time because like, I feel like I could just pepper you. You got to ask this question because I've asked the last six. My bad, dude. I just, I just totally took no, over your podcast. It's I'm great. Sorry. It's great. This is great. I'm sorry. So I'm always curious as to like trends in, in food and sports or whatever the, the world at large. And, when you got into the NBA, it was a different ball game then. Yeah. Right? It was about low post scoring still. A lot of isolation. Teams had not sort of figured out that, you know, an average post play was netting like 0.7 points per possession or something like that. Most of the time, everybody had two bigs on the floor. There was a, a distinction, a, really a distinction between my position, the two, the shooting guard, and the three, the small forward. Now those parts are interchangeable. The three and the four are sort of interchangeable. On some teams, the one and the two are interchangeable. Yeah, the league is uh, the league is totally different. And there, there also was like, I, I can remember my first practice of my training camp. A lot of teams do this drill. There'll be two guys at one end and everybody else will be in three lines at the other end. And three players, so the first guy in each of the three lines will go down and run three on two. And then the two defenders will get the rebound or take the ball out of the basket if they score. And they'll run back down two-on-one on whoever shot the ball. So three-on-two, two-on-one. And it's a continuous drill. So I do the drill the first time, and somebody somebody throws the ball ahead to me on the two-on-one part, and I shoot a transition three. And we had Brian Hill as our coach. He's an old-school guy, and he's just— This fucking, is when you were in Orlando? Yeah, he just my rookie year. He just, just reams me out. And he's like, you know, we want to lay up— Take the layup. Don't ever, sh- don't ever shoot that shot again. And now, like you, you, you see an NBA game, and it'll be like a four on one, and it's one guy with the ball, and the other three guys just run to the three point line. The transition three is one of the best threes to take because people of, didn't know that back then. But like, who decided that was the better odd? Because you have a higher chance of rebound, you have more efficiency in terms of well, scoring output or something. Yeah, I mean, they, people analyze everything. But when are you going to get an, a, just a wide open, feet set look? There's a there. I but mean, the prevailing wisdom is you don't do that because that's not how we play basketball, right? Right. There's an old school mentality that you have to like two on one, pass the ball, make the defender commit to you, and then pass the other guy so he shoots a layup. And it wasn't Don Nelson, but like, was it the Golden State Warriors that really made this popular? Because it had to have existed beforehand. There was like little outbursts of this. So like the pace of play historically was actually higher at certain points in time in the 60s, in the 70s, and even the 80s. The 90s, it kind of slowed down. But then you had, you know, run DMC, you know, with with those guys, or run TMC, I should say. Golden State. In Golden State. Then you had D'Antoni. And the Phoenix Sun, seven seconds or less. The team for me that kind of like, when I watched them growing up, that I was like, okay, this is how I got to play in the NBA, was the Sacramento Kings when they had Weber, Asia, Vlade. It was like everybody was super skilled. Most everybody could shoot. Weber and Vlade weren't necessarily shooting threes back then, but they could step out and shoot. And so that was like the team that I was like, oh, you know, I could have a chance to play in the league if I got in the right system. And then my Orlando teams with with Stan Van Gundy, where we were playing four out, one in, you know, spread pick and rolls, Jameer Nelson or Hito going downhill, surrounded by shooters, Dwight rolling to the basket. That that was that was our offense. 
but how come it never worked before? Right? Is it simply because people were just I stubborn? I don't know. I don't. So I can remember Stan's first day with us, and he comes in our meeting and he gives us these stats. He's like, all right, a free throw historically is worth 1.2 points per possession. I'm making up the numbers here. And he's like, that's about as good as you can get. And he's like, a corner three is worth 1.01 points per possession. You know, a three is worth X, Y, or Z. Then he's like, the long two is worth 0.89. And it's like so much lower. So he's like, all right, we want layups, free throws, and threes. And that's how everybody plays. Now, some teams have taken it to an extreme like the Houston Rockets. But that was, to me, like the first time I'd ever heard any of those stats. And this was in fall of 2007. Were people in the NBA talking shit about how you guys were playing? It was different. Yeah, it was different. And it happened by chance. That's the thing, too. We were going to play Richard Orhito at the three. And then we were going to play Tony Batie at the four and Dwight at the five. And Tony Batie and Dwight basically were going up for a rebound or Dwight was posting Tony up and Tony tore his shoulder, tore his labrum in his shoulder or his rotator cuff, one or the other. And so one of Hidu and, and Richard had to play the four and Hidu was not having it. He just did not want the physicality because back then he had to guard like legit four men, legit bigs. And so Richard said, okay, I'll do it. And we just started off the season playing that way. And, and we came out like, I think we were 33 and eight you know, coming out of the gate or something like that. And the only reason I I, I ask these questions, because I said earlier that I look at other things in the world and culture, and I try to extract something that might be meaningful to me. And the way the game is played now is faster, spaced completely differently. If you look at the football, the run and shoot in the 80s with Jerry Glanville was seen as a joke. But now, basically, that's how football gets played now and the spread offense, so on and so forth. There's other ways... And when I look at the NBA and how it's played today, it actually has impacted me because I love the NBA, obviously Jordan and all of that stuff in the late 80s, 90s. And then I watch the NBA and I see it changing. And I see announcers saying like, no, this isn't going to work. You listen to talk radio, you're like, this coach is a joke or so on and so forth. And I'm always looking at this as like, there's like a revolution happening here and I'm watching it unfold before my very eyes. And I'll never forget, like, Roy Hibbert. <laughs> life comes at you fast. Life comes at you fast. And it <laughs> yeah. just changed overnight. Yeah. And more often than not, I look at something as whoever decided to, to change the game of basketball simply said, fuck it. I'm yeah. not going to do it this way anymore. And I'm not going to listen to you, even though it's the establishment. I'm going to take a chance, whether it's random or not. And I'm going to try to do something different. And when I see that unfold in the NBA, that gives me confidence in my profession to be like, yeah, maybe I can try it a little bit differently too. Does it give you confidence to fail? Because you mentioned failure as being an important thing for you. Does it, does seeing change work or not work, seeing people try new shit in a different field, does that give you confidence to fail? 100%. I, I mean, that is one of like the great truths for me. When I see someone do something that is like against the all odds, that just gets me so fucking stoked, right? <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. It's not just like the underdog. Like that's why I genuinely love sports is the underdog yeah. is like one of the purest things out there. But I think you can also be the underdog in, in thought and organization 
And uh, that's why I love sports so much is I draw a lot of parallels for myself because yeah. I'm never going to be you or anything like that. But if I can see how the NBA's changed pretty fucking rapidly yeah. and now it's sort of positionless, you can see that in kitchens. The brigade system is how we all learn how to cook. Yeah. That was set up simply so people could throw coal in the fucking oven. Guess what? We have electricity now and gas. Why are we still basing our kitchen setup on the 1950s on military France? It's incredibly stupid. Yet, if you tell someone, like this happens all the time. When we built out Co, I was like, hey guys, I think we need to just do electric. We don't even need a traditional island. Granted, it's beautiful. I'm really happy that we have it because it's nice to have. But you're afraid everyone's going to laugh at you. It bucks the trend too much. And like, I think about these things as like, man, like this happens in sports all the time. If it can happen in sports and it works, what else can I question? And the modern day brigade is something I look at all the time. It's like cooks today are positionless. And Major Domo we have like what Garmanger that does the cold foods. You have Poissonnier that does the fish and grill. You have Entremet that does the vegetables. You have uh, basically the saucier meat roast guy. And you have like people that are floating around. They're like the utility players. If this was 15 years ago, not even 10 years ago, everyone's staying, staying there for six months to a year without ever moving a station. Now, yeah, everyone has to know everything. And we're at a place now in the culinary world that if you are holding on to the past, you're going to get smoked. And that's the same thing in the NBA. If you, you know, yeah. Did I, did I just say something insane? No, I, I, I love what you said. I'm, there's a follow-up question. So there's this revolution to use the word you use that has happened in the NBA. Some of it, I think is because the players, the makeup of players, the skill sets of a Giannis, like it's the unicorn. These guys are unicorns and you have to sort of adjust the game around these unicorns. But a lot of it is technology and data-driven. And I'm curious, if there's anything that's happening in the culinary world that is changing because of technology or data. That has happened. Uh, technology, yes. But you're talking to someone that screams to the high heavens at work. is like, we need to get a statistician. We need to collect data <laughs> because it makes complete sense yeah. to me. Totally. Yeah. It does. Like, yeah. let's just say this at noodle bar. One of the early jobs you have is making steam buns and you have to put your hand in a hot fucking steam. It sucks. You know, the question we should be asking is not if you have a great resume. It's like, do you have a high threshold for pain? To put your fucking hand <laughs> in like steam. Yeah. Like, why are we not asking better questions or right. like certain setups, whether it's the front of the house or the back of the house, certain combinations of cooks and servers, you're going to have better sales. You're going to have higher customer satisfaction. Mm. But this data is not being collected for the most I'm part. trying like hell. Yeah. I actually talked to Daryl Morey about this the one <laughs> time I met him. I was like, dude, you need to get your nerds on the <laughs> shit. Nerds. Jeez, man. Jeez. Because I think David it can change. David said it, I didn't. <laughs> But like, I do believe that there's room for it in a way. I don't think it's going to be as revolutionary as baseball or basketball, but I do believe that's the next stage for cooking is to understand there. If you could just record the movements of cooks and find a way to grade it all, yeah, you're going to, you're going to find some correlation. And I wish I could have some statistics because if I talk to a young cook, that's like, they want to be great and they want to be like, say, uh, Thomas Keller, 
I would be like, hey, Thomas Keller at age 25, he was doing this. He graded out here, here, and here. His family meal was a 9.0. He never missed a day of attendance. He did, his knives were always like the highest level of sharpness. Yeah. Like this is real data that you could have. There's no reason why we couldn't have it. Right. And you could have historical data on everyone. But Interesting. no one wants to do it because it's so stupid. And I've talked to so many people that are like, you're so stupid. This is such a stupid <laughs> idea. <laughs> <laughs> but like we do it anyway because like it our intuition is one of those people that called you stupid. <laughs> probably, probably. A lot of people think it's stupid as hell. But I feel when we are in the kitchen and there's the eye test and there's intuition, I'm making these calculations anyway on the fly. I think you know. So you wish there was a way to record because because a lot of it is intuition. Yeah, but uh, and was, repetition. There's a way to. There's hopefully at some point a way to record this keep the data and then be able to analyze it later. So the one thing I would say, like I would assume, I don't know when they came about, like Open Table, Resi, the the ticketing website, Talk. Talk. Yeah. Those are all sort of positive things, right. I would assume, for the restaurant industry. And those, specifically Talk, has sort of beaten the system on people not showing up for tables. Yeah. I don't know if they beat the system, but it's definitely, I'm waiting to see who's going to win. On it, I mean, this is some Highlander shit. There, I think only <laughs> there's a, there can only be one on the on the reservation. Like I like Resi, I like Talk, you know, Open Tables there, but whatever. Okay, so here's this is a question I have for you. So I like Resi and I like Talk. The open Table is third, but a lot of that is because of the re, the, the restaurants that are available right. to book tables on. So like in Brooklyn, I don't use Open Table. All the good restaurants on are on Resi. In LA, I would say most of the restaurants I ate at were, were on Talk. You know, I didn't use Resi. I barely used Open Table in LA. Like, like this is like the ABA NBA merger. Right. Like, it's so gonna happen. Someone's gonna win. Exactly. I, yeah. I mean, most people would probably bet Open Table, right? Because they're just so massive. Yeah. But because they're so massive, they sort of like are gangsters. They don't give a fuck about a lot of things too yeah. much. But guess what? The throughput that people use on Open Table is massive. More people use that still than anything else. And you have all the data on that, I would yeah. assume. Yeah. Yeah. Are any of your restaurants on Resi? We're going to get them soon, I okay. believe. Yeah. All right. Let me know when Co is on. All right. <laughs> all right, man. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. That was the end of what I hope to be many more conversations with JJ Reddick. Give us five stars on however you vote for these podcasts and I'll speak to you guys next week.